Uh, if you are new to Element, welcome. We hand out puppies all the time. Uh, there, there are Bibles in the seat backs in front of you. If you don't own one, you can have one. If you forgot one, you can use one. There are sermon notes on the communion tables around the room. They look like this. And on the inside... You are going to get a kind of a recap of what we talk about today, uh, some questions that go along with that. On the back, you're going to get the verses we're going through and a place for notes on the bottom of that. If you have a smart device, you can download an app. It is called Uversion. You click on More and then Events in Uversion. We will come up by GPS in your smart device, and you will get sermon notes, verses, questions, announcements, all that goes with today's message. My name is Aaron. I'm one of the pastors at Element. Why don't you stand with me for the reading of God's Word? This could be all of our life first, by the way. You should run around just saying this. Galatians 1.24, and they glorify God because of me. And that's how you got to say it, right? Let's pray. Uh, Father, this morning we ask that you would teach us what it means to be a people who would live in such a way that people would glorify you because of our lives, because of how we live, because of how we honor who you are. And so today I ask that you would begin to make that a reality, that we would see you for who you are and our lives as they have been found in you, and that would change us and how we live. Amen. Have a seat. All right. Oh, oh, there. Is that better? Now they changed. (laughs) The lights keep changing. I don't know what's going on right now. You may not notice, but to me it's a big deal. Okay, Uh, so we are doing this series through the New Testament book of Galatians. This is week four. If you have an Element Bible, it's on page 631. You can open there. And we're going to finish chapter one today by talking about our stories, uh, Paul's story, but really the overarching story of God in our lives. Uh, You probably heard us, if you've been around any length of time at Element, we talk about these things called redemption groups. And redemption groups, people have all these ideas of what they're doing, but redemption groups really try and get you to re-narrate your entire life in terms of what the gospel is, in terms of God's story. Uh, Too often, what we do is we take everything that has happened to us in our past, and we use that to look towards our future. Uh, Everybody has what we call a grid, and everything that happens in your life, your joys, your sorrows, good things, bad things, good families, bad families, no families, they all go into this grid, and that grid is how you view the world. You don't just look at the world openly. You look at the world through whatever grid that you have. And sometimes that can be dangerous because when we continue to look through the world through our own grids, we cease to see it as God doing a work and we make the whole story of what we go through all about ourselves. We make the whole point of our lives us, and that's not how it's supposed to go. What we want to do is see God at the center of the story, of everything that happens. And what that means is no matter what has happened in your life, no matter what will happen in your life, it can have a redemptive purpose. And that's the beauty of understanding God as the center of our stories. Uh, Back in the 1800s, there's a guy named John Henry Newman. You probably never heard of him, uh, but he was one of probably the great minds and thinkers in 19th century England. He was considered uh, a great preacher, a great writer, but then he did the unthinkable, and he leaves the Anglican Church and becomes a Roman Catholic in 1845. (gasps) Gasp the horror of it all. Uh, There are books you can read about this, and there are people who started a attacking John Henry Newman and his decisions. One of these guys was named Charles Kingsley. And Charles Kingsley attacked him for 19 
19 years. And at the end of 19 years, after John Henry Newman being called double-minded, uh, leaving the truth, a treacherous person, finally John Henry Newman responds. And he writes this book, and it has been considered one of the classics of the 19th century. It is called Apologia Pro Vita Sua, and that means a defense of one's life. If you want to get a copy of that, you can. It's on Amazon. Uh, people have translated it for free for you, so you can get that. You're, you're going to get bored by the second page, but I'm telling you, you can get it, get it for free. But he writes that in 1864. That is after 19 years of being attacked. And in the book, he will tell the story of why he did what he did. And his story has depth and transparency. And even the people who doubted why he did what he did said he did that with sincerity with a concern for who Christ really is in his life. And I disagree with a lot of Newman's conclusions, but I still believe he had a genuine faith in Jesus. Now, when you look at the Apostle Paul, the Apostle Paul starts off as a Pharisee. He is a killer of Christians, an imprisoner of Christians, and he will eventually write the book of Galatians defending the gospel. And it's almost the same kind of position. He leaves Judaism and becomes a Christian. And when you read the book of Galatians, that's almost almost Paul's apology of Pro Vita Sua. It's almost the defense of his life. So what I want to do is read to you the section at the end of chapter one, and we're going to talk about Paul's grid and how that changes. And hopefully that'll help us see our grids and how our grids can change. So Galatians chapter one, starting in verse 11, I'm going to read the rest of the chapter here. For I would have you know, brothers, and brothers means brothers and sisters, by the way, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, if you haven't been here, we've talked about that the last three weeks, why Paul can say what he does right there. Verse 13, if you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. But when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away to Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Then after three years, so this is another length of time, I went to Jerusalem to visit Cephas, that's Peter, and remained with him 15 days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James the Lord's brother. And what I am writing you before God, I do not lie. And he says that because people were saying, oh, these people taught him what he's supposed to say. And Paul's saying, no, I got what I got from Jesus. That's why I preach the gospel the way that I do. Verse 21, then I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia, and I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They were only, only were hearing it said, he who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they glorify God because of me. And that's what I had you stand for. Now, this is Paul's story. It's a shortened version of a story for sure, but it's recounting his old life versus his new life in Christ. Paul, just like us, grows up with role models. Today, people grow up with role models. It's football season, so it's probably somebody on one of the teams that are playing right now, or baseball, or basketball, or music stars, or Marvel heroes. Everybody has heroes. For young Jewish boys, the heroes would have been the prophets 
prophets and the martyrs who died for God and his law. That was who they looked towards. Those were their heroes. And that's Paul's grid of life as he grows up. I want to be just like one of those. He is named after one of Israel's or after Israel's first king, a guy named Saul. And this is why Paul rounds out Galatians chapter 1 with his Apologia Pro Vita Sua. Paul's going to describe himself as someone who was the strictest in their adherence and their tradition of the Jewish law. He followed it closely. He thought he knew how to apply it and how everybody else should apply it around him. That's Paul's grid. One of the favorite role models of Pharisees was the prophet Elijah. Now, Elijah, if you don't know the story, he is considered a great prophet because soldiers come to get him and he calls down the fire of God on those soldiers. He uh, goes against the prophets of Baal and he calls down fire on the prophets of Baal. And he is a man the Pharisees said that everybody was afraid of. When people wanted to compromise their obedience to the one true God of Israel by worshiping idols, well, Elijah is someone that you should be afraid of. Young, zealous Pharisees, they loved Elijah. Though I think they misunderstand the whole story and what God was was doing through him. Paul, before he comes to know Jesus, probably sees himself just like Elijah. He is going out and he is going after Christians and bringing the fire of judgment of God upon them, pulling them out of them homes, having them arrested, having them killed. He, he can't believe that people would believe that Jesus is the Messiah. Why? Because the Messiah would not have been crucified on a cross. That's humiliating. The Messiah would conquer and he would rule in the nation of Israel. He would not be worshipped because the Messiah could not be God. God. But then really seeing himself like Elijah, Paul has a similar experience. At one point, Elijah is going from one place to another and God stops him in his tracks. The exact same thing happens to the apostle Paul. God stops him in his tracks. Elijah becomes dejected and depressed and goes off alone to Mount Sinai to meet with God. The same thing happens to Paul. He goes off to this place called Arabia. In Mount Sinai, you will have Elijah. He will get earthquakes and wind and fire and then he gets a still small voice like a gentle whisper that comes and meets as God reveals himself. Well, same thing with Paul, because Arabia, scholars will tell you at this time, Mount Sinai is in Arabia. So Paul goes there and the same thing happens. He probably has this mental theological wrestling match with God. N.T. Wright says this, to Paul's horror and amazement, God had now revealed his son and had done so in order that he, Saul, an ultra-Orthodox Jew, might tell the pagan nations that, the God, that Israel's God loved them just as much as he loved Israel. So imagine Paul's grid. Like, what are you doing, Ricky Bobby? You're blowing my mind. He just blew the grid away. Paul's grid just gets destroyed. All this former life, all those things he learned. What am I supposed to do now? It all gets blown away with the unveiling of Jesus as the true Messiah. Jesus' death on the cross, that crucifixion, that humiliation, was how God is removing the stain of sin upon his people. Not by our works, not by following the law. And then he, Jesus rises from the dead, and the resurrection shows that Jesus is the first fruits of new life. He has risen from the grave and that new life is promised to us as well. And so Paul's life, his vocation, his whole story is now retold in the light of the gospel message. And we have to stop and ask ourselves the same question. How has our lives been retold in light of the gospel message? And not just something vague like, oh yeah, I love Jesus, it's cool, but specific things. How maybe in your life did something hurt your pride or offend you or make your walls go up because boom, how dare they? And that gets blown away with, you know what? I'm supposed to live in grace. 
and humility and hope. Specifically, how do we begin to live differently in light of what the gospel has actually done in our lives? Paul, he is a real Pharisee. A real Pharisee. He was a real Pharisee. He is a real apostle because Jesus shows up and speaks to him and teaches him. And so what's happening in Galatia is these people in Galatia are saying, but he's not a real apostle. He's junior varsity. Paul's just telling you what you want to hear. Why did they say that? Because those Judaizers, those false teachers, well, they said you had to be circumcised in order to be part of the family of God. Imagine this. You know, they're, they're grown man, they're circumcised, and all of a sudden Paul is saying, you're saved by grace. You don't need to be circumcised. You don't have to follow the law. This is like someone who maybe bought a Tesla in December, and then in January they dropped it $10,000, and they're going, if I had to pay this much, they got to get circumcised too. And Paul's like, no, it's grace, man. It's grace. <laughs> Wait to bring it back around again, right? <laughs> They're saying, Paul's just saying these things because he wants to be liked. No, we all like to be liked. We do. In the pursuit of that goal, some people will say just about anything. We live in a cancel culture. Everyone's afraid to say anything. Large corporations will bow down to like a small group of people because they're afraid of something happening. Think about politics. I mean, don't. But think about politics, right? I cannot believe that half those politicians actually believe the things that they say. I mean, I, I can't believe it, especially when it makes no sense or every couple years they're saying something different than they said a couple years ago. It's all about being liked. As we talked about last week, that is not how the Apostle Paul lived his life. In Galatians 1.10, Paul says, Am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? See, if Paul was trying to please man, he would say, Yeah, you need to get circumcised because we all love to follow the law. We all want to do the things to make God have to love us. God, I worked really hard. God, I did this. God, you now have to love me. But Paul says, No, it is grace. We are not saved by our works. He says, if I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. Paul looks after those who are going after him. And he says, you know what? Seriously, I do not look for human approval. I do not. I am the Messiah's slave and nobody else's. And in the Greek text, when Paul says that, it's very, very strong. And this is why Paul tells them how he came to understand the gospel the way that he did, what it did in him, but not just what it did in him, what it originally did in the Galatians when they believed, and not just what it did in the Galatians when they believed, but what it does in every single one of us when we believed. So Paul explains where he had come from. Uh, how Jesus confronted him on the road to Damascus, how he had seen the risen Lord Jesus and what immediate effects it had in his life. You know what we call that? We call that our testimony. That's what we call it. And we all should have a testimony. If you get called into court, you go on that stand, that's your testimony. We should all have a testimony about what God has done in our lives. We should be able to tell our story. If you get baptized at Element, we have you write out your story because a lot of people have never done it. And it's really good to be able to learn how to tell that story. And part of telling that story is understanding our grids. It's understanding what our hearts long for, what we love, how we view things. And we want you to be able to tell your story in light of God's larger narrative. So what I want to do this morning is I want to show you Paul's pre-grid and post-grid and how those things came together. So open your Bibles to Acts chapter 8. That's on page 595 if you have an element Bible. Now, Acts chapter 8 takes place right after the killing of the, one of the first deacons in the church, a guy named Stephen. And section 8 has been titled by commentators and translators, Saul Ravages the Church. So who's Saul? 
That's Paul, okay? That's Paul. Acts chapter 8, verse 1 goes like this. And Saul approved of his execution, that Stephen execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. And he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. I mean, what a nice guy. You are burying Stephen and Paul, Saul, running around, pulling people out of their homes and persecuting them. But why does he do that? Because of his grid, because of how he saw the world. This is what God's holiness must look like, so I'm going to do these things. Those people, they're diluting the holiness of God. What false things have we done or do we do in our life because of our grid? Because we are not trusting who God is. Now, open your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 1. It's on page 642, if you have an element Bible. And in Acts, you really kind of see big changes in people's lives. And sometimes when we read it, we think, yeah, that's then, that's not now. But it really does relate. About eight years ago, we went through the first part of the book of Acts, and I did a couple of messages on Paul. One of them I called uh, the worst of us, because this is what Paul says. After he comes to follow Christ, he says, I'm the worst. I'm terrible. Before he follows Jesus, it's like, I'm the best. I'm a Pharisee. I work really hard. All you other losers, you need to figure it out. But I'm the best. When he comes to follow Christ, it all changes. He says, I'm the worst. You see his entire grid of his life begin to change. It does. And the point being, if God could save Paul, he could save any of us. He really could. After Saul becomes Paul, he gives these words. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 12. I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, an insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. It's not that everything Paul ever knew or learned had no bearing on the rest of his life. It's now re-narrated, reinterpreted in light of God's grace. Verse 15, this saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. But I receive mercy for this reason that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who are to believe in him for eternal life. There's his grid change right there. Paul says something really interesting, and people have struggled with this for centuries. He says, I'm the worst. He will say that in three different letters that he writes. He may have even said it to the Galatians at some point. Christ came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost or whom I am the worst. In Greek, this is the word protos. It means first. The King James Version will say the chief. I'm the chief of sinners. Uh, There's this guy named John Bunyan wrote this uh, spiritual allegory called the Pilgrim's Progress. He actually also wrote a spiritual autobiography based on this verse and he, and he called it Grace Abounding to the Chief of Sinners. That's what he calls it. Paul is saying, of all the people I know, of all the sinners in the world, I'm the worst. Now, do you think that Paul is exaggerating? Because sometimes Christians like to do this, right? It's like, we call it pious exaggeration. You ever get in a room with Christians and they start telling their stories of how they were saved? It's like, oh my goodness. Everybody wants to one-up somebody else. You know, I was addicted to drugs and I became a believer. Oh, you were addicted to drugs? Well, I was addicted to drugs and I made meth. What? Well, you were addicted to drugs and you made meth? Well, I was addicted to drugs, made meth, and sold it to children. Well, you're addicted to meth and, and being drugs and sold to children? Well, I was addicted to drugs and made meth and sold to children and got the meth munchies and ate my grandma. 
I mean, it just, it just goes on and on and on. It's ludicrous sometimes the stories that people tell. So you look at Paul and you might say, Paul, come on, you are not the worst of sinners. You're not a serial killer. Eh, kind of was. Okay, well, you're not a rapist. You're not a genocidal head of some country, but Paul had thought it through. For him, that is true. So before coming to faith, he's got this grid, right? He is religious. He is the best. I'm so religious. He believed he was on God's mission. He does not kill Christians because he's an atheist. He's not like Stalin or Mao or Pol Pot. He kills them because he is pious. What else in this grid? Well, he is zealous. He is so zealous for God's law. He's the best. He's the top of his class in rabbinical studies. He studies long. He studies hard. He had a calling. He is going to go out and accomplish that calling no matter what takes place. And then what else? The best. He's spiritual. I go to the temple. I go to worship God. I know what I'm supposed to do. I'm under temple authority. That's Paul's grid before he comes to Christ. Like so many people today who are religious and zealous and spiritual, Paul is lost in his own self-centered world of sin. And when Jesus saves Paul, he's going to mature him into a giant of the Christian faith. But imagine what it took for God to blow away Paul's grid of who he thought he was and reinterpret all of that in light of the true gospel. To make these people around the world, the people who used to be afraid of him, start to praise God because of what God did in his life. Apart from Jesus, Paul is the most influential person in the history of the Christian church. Like imagine a United States of America without George Washington or the civil rights movement without Martin Luther King. You just can't do it. But aside from Jesus, Paul is a giant in Christian history. And his ministry lasted roughly 12 to 15 years, maybe. During that 12 to 15 years, he would walk 20 miles a day. What would you walk 20 miles a day for besides a Klondike bar? Like, what would you walk for? <laughs> He is flogged, and he's beaten, and he's stoned and in prison, set adrift on the open sea. He's shipwrecked, and eventually he's beheaded. But he perseveres because he understood Jesus' love and Jesus' calling in his life. Paul will write 13 of the 27 New Testament books that we have. In the book of Acts, chapter 13 to 28, is focused on Paul's life and ministry. Paul provides the most books. The person with the, with the most word count is this guy named Luke. Luke writes the book of Luke and the book of Acts, and it's widely held that Luke comes to know Christ because of the ministry of Paul. You read in the book of Acts, you'll see this. They did this and they did this. And at one point it switches and it says, we were doing this and we were doing that. And I think that that is where Luke was actually converted in the book of Acts. And it's beautiful. But without Paul, most of the New Testament does not exist. And Paul starts as a killer of Christians and ends up being killed for being a Christian. And Paul says, of all the people I know, of all the sinners in the world, I'm the worst. Is that false modesty or is it truth? Now, I tell you a lot how terrible we are as people. And sometimes people say, that's the problem with Christianity. It gives people a low self-esteem. That's not why I tell you how terrible we are. I tell you that so we can see the great grace of God and rescuing us where we are. Uh, there's a book called Confessions by the church father Augustine. And he talks about how awful he was when he was a child. You want to know how bad he was? This is what he tells you in the book. He tells this story about how he and a bunch of boys, his friends, went into an orchard that didn't belong to them. And they climbed a tree and stole some apples. <sighs> I know, it's like, woo, that's a bad boy right there. Some of you like bad boys. Okay, it's Augustine. Anyway, there's this writer, and his name is Philippe Ernesto, and he writes this book about how dumb that is and why Christianity should be rejected because it breeds dumb things like this. He writes this, This is psychologically pathological. Clearly, it's the result of bad upbringing and low self-esteem. 
See, Armesto says that all of us are normal because if we stole some apples, we'd be like, yeah, we stole some apples. It's not a big deal. He's like, Paul and Augustine need to learn how to lighten up a bit. But the problem with Armesto is he looks at this through his grid. He is not looking at what Paul and Augustine are actually saying. He's seen it through his own grid saying, oh, this is what they must mean rather than saying what they actually mean. Because Augustine and Paul say the same thing. What, he, what Augustine says about the apple is what Paul says about himself. He's the worst. These people, they used to be afraid of me, but now they praise God. What's the difference? What's the grid change? Well, 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 13 and 14, Paul says, I was a blasphemer, I was a prosecutor, and I was an insolent opponent that will translate as a violent man, but I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. We will sometimes use that as an excuse, right? I was ignorant. I, I did not know. Sometimes it can get you some leniency, like an uh, officer, I did not know the speed limit wasn't 105. Um, I didn't know an all-Twinkie diet was bad for me. Uh, I didn't know that Robin Banks was illegal. I don't know, something like that. Paul's grid. you got to see the difference, right? At first, it is, I'm religious. I'm the best. But now what does he say? No. He goes, no, I, I, I'm not the best. I'm the worst. I wasn't religious. I was a blasphemer. Why? Because he didn't know who Jesus was, who Jesus claimed to be. And if you don't know that Jesus is the Son of God, you could say blasphemous things. Oh, I'm the best. I was zealous. Now he changes, right? Now it's, no, I'm not zealous. I was a, I was a persecutor. He persecuted Christians. Again, he's trying to please God by doing it, but, but he didn't believe Jesus was who he was. Again, he was ignorant. And the most telling one is the third one, because Paul says, oh, I was spiritual. And I was like, no, I was an insolent opponent and a violent man. This is the Greek word for pride. It's the word hubris. It's the Greek word hybristes. And it means to trample upon. You will trample upon people and things. Paul says this, I was good. I did not lie. I did not cheat. I was not an abuser of women or children or the poor. I went to church. I prayed. I knew the Bible inside and out. I obeyed. But underneath that was a goodness that had a different motive. I, my goodness was because I wanted to feel superior to everyone else. I wanted to say, look how good I am. Look at all the good things I'm doing. You should do the good things like I'm doing. Hubris, pride. And he said, because of that, I trampled on people. The reality is that what Paul and Augustine both say is there's something in their heart that's centered on pride. Again, in Confessions, Augustine's autobiography, he says, When I willed to commit the theft of the apples, I did so not because I was driven to it by any need. I stole a thing of which I had plenty of my own and of much better quality. No, I did it because it was forbidden. I love my sin. I loved the sin itself. He says, I didn't need the apples. I didn't, I didn't want the apples. I didn't have a desire for the apples until my mom said no. And as soon as she said no, that's when I wanted those apples. And Augustine goes on to say one of the best lines in understanding our grids. This is what he says. Sins of childhood differ only in objects, not in nature, from those terrible ones later in life. So when we're kids, like you have these objects, I want these things. You get older and those objects change. But sins of childhood differ only in objects, not in the nature of it, from the most terrible ones later in life. And that's what Paul says. It's not a desire for the apples. It's a desire to be our own God. We all want sovereignty. We do not want God to tell us what to do. When God disagrees with us, we want to go our own way and say, no, I'm right, you're wrong. This is how my life is supposed to be lived. Even a one-year-old, right? You go to a one-year-old and you tell them, no, they can't form a sentence, but they will let you know their displeasure. Yeah! Right? They, 
they don't lack motivation. What they lack is power to make their will come about. That's the thing. And it's like, no one's going to tell me what to do. And this is what Augustine and Paul are both saying is the essence of sin. Sins of childhood differ only in objects, not in nature, from the most terrible ones later in life. Uh, Tim Keller actually points out the irony of this. He says, you look at Augustine. When Augustine, before he becomes a Christian, his grid is sex, drugs, and rock and roll. He is living a very licentious life. You look at Paul, before he becomes a Christian, he is the opposite extreme of Augustine. He is extremely moral life. Like Augustine would be running around and trying to organize movements around sexual liberation. And Paul would be the guy who ran out protesting Augustine and his sexual liberation movement. And yet here's the thing that should just blow away your grid and think, well, I don't have a grid. We all have a grid. It, the Bible says they're exactly the same. They're exactly the same. Underneath each one is this pride that wanted to be its own master, its own savior, and its own Lord. I do not want God to tell me what to do. I'm going to do it all on my own. And one used immorality and the other used morality. But it came about to the exact same thing. Like when people want to reject God when he disagrees with us, that is pride. That's rebellion. And so we have to ask, how does our story mirror Paul's story or mirror Augustine's story? Paul says, I'm the worst of sinners. But what he says before that, he says, here's a trustworthy saying. And he says that because all of us should be able to say that. That's why Paul says what he does. I am the worst. He understands what the Bible says about sin, but also what it says about grace. Sin is a desire to have the universe revolve around ourselves. That's our pride. And Paul says, because of pride, I am easily as bad as the worst sinner imaginable. And he warns the Galatians about their pride. Don't trust your pride. You will not be saved by what you do. You are saved by the grace of Jesus Christ. When God gets a hold of Paul's heart, he's able to see the deceits of his own heart. Personally, what he did, how he lived his life. And that changes Paul's grid and it changes how he sees the entire world. Because Paul goes from, I'm the best, to I'm the worst. But because of the gospel and what Christ has done, we now become the best in God's eyes. Because of what Christ has done. Paul sees his life through the gospel. 1 Corinthians 15.10, Paul says, But by the grace of God I am what I am, and his grace towards me was not in vain. And this is why when you look at Galatians 1.24, And they glorified God because of me. Because of the change that God brought about in Paul's life. Paul says, guys, I'm the worst, but I'm also the best. And we have a problem with both of those statements. At least I think we do. Like the worst, you're too hard on yourself. The best, uh, you forget your humility much. Like, Do you know the reason we're afraid to say those things? Because of our grids. We have false humility and false pride. That's how we live our lives. And this is why an understanding of the true gospel is so important. Because the gospel reminds us on one hand, we, we are the worst. Whether you're a singer and a boy man or the apostle Paul, you're, you're, you're the worst. We're equally in need of grace. We were irredeemable without it. But the beauty is we have been given grace. 2 Corinthians 5.21, For our sake he made him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. We through what Christ has done, in God's eyes, have Christ's righteousness laid upon us. You know what that makes us? The best. It does. It doesn't say God made Jesus sinful. It says he made him sin. It means he takes the worst of us and he laid it upon Christ. The judgment that we deserved was laid upon him so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And Paul says, that's the message that changed me. That's how I now preach. This is how I understand God's world. This is what I view everything through. 
now. Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Jesus came to be in our place. Uh, Martin Luther, my paraphrase says this, the gospel is that you're more wicked than you ever dared believe and you're more loved than you ever dared hope at the same time. And that's beautiful. When we trust Jesus with our lives, God sees us as holy, even the worst of us. And really, we got to think about this in our lives and our grids and the things that we go through, right? How can others or how could others, if your grid changed, start to praise God because of you? Not because you're so wonderful, but because of what Christ has done in you. Like, what does your grid say? When something happens to you, I got to tell you, I, I see my grid most, and I know I make fun of this a lot, but I see my grid the most when I have to drive through a roundabout because all of a sudden I think everybody is offensive to me. How dare they not know how to drive in a roundabout? Don't they know how important I am? I've got to get to the Home Depot. What are you doing? And all of a sudden I'm just offended in here. Why am I offended? My grid, because someone's in my way, and I think I'm more important than I am. My grid needs to change. If I saw the grid of the gospel, I think, man, I need to pray for them because they're not smart. No, I would, <laughs> I would want to pray for them because when you start praying for somebody else, it actually begins to change you as well. What story does your grid narrate to you in your life? Does it tell you that, that you, you are just a victim? Does it tell you that you're just better than everybody else? Does it tell you you're never going to measure up? Or does it tell you no one's going to measure up to you because you're so great? We have to get clear about what our grids tell us. And when we understand what our grids are actually saying, we can then take a step back and say, God, blow this away. Have me narrate my life in terms of what you have done. We want Jesus to be at the center. And whenever it's us, we want that taken away. And so we have to think about this. When you mess up in your life, Where's your identity? Is it like, look how terrible I am? Because if you mess up in your life, when you have the proper grid, what you will say is, yeah, look, I did that thing. It's because I'm the worst. But you know what? Because what Christ has done, I am seen as righteous in God's eyes. And it will change how we go through the places where we stumble and where we fall because we will start to walk through these things in an understanding of God's great grace given to us. We'll begin to walk through any difficulties in our lives. Not saying it's ever going to be easy. It's not easy. But we can walk through difficult spaces with the understanding of Christ as the center of our lives. And that helps us to walk through those places because we know that He is with us. He has never left us. Every step, every moment of the way, every crazy thing that we've done, everything that has been done to us, he is there walking with us through it and having to re-narrate our entire lives in terms of his goodness and his grace. And this is one of the reasons that Elman, every single week, we take you guys to this place of communion because it is a reminder of God's great grace given to us. That's why you break the cracker like Christ's body is broken for us and you dip it in the wine or the grape juice as a reminder of his blood that was shed for every single one of us. Because salvation is not found in us. It's not found in how good we are. It's not found in the things that we've done. It's found in what Christ has done for us. And this means our righteousness, again, is not based upon us. Many times we have our grids. And as we look through our grids, we put walls up around ourselves because we're afraid for people to truly know who we are. We have this idea of a false self. And then we start to give all of our effort and energy into that false self. And what God does for Paul, I mean, Paul's false self was morality and righteousness and, oh, I'm so good. And God just comes in and he blows that away. God, but don't you want me, want me to be moral and righteous? Yes, I do. But it's not based upon what you do. It's based upon what I've done. 
And if you're only ever focused upon yourself, then your story is narrated with you at the center of it. And we do not need or want to be the center of our stories. We need Christ to be the center of our story. And this is what community reminds us of. You come to a place and you lay yourself right there, bare before him. We don't pass communion throughout a room. You actually got to come up and do it because it's a response to what he's done. And if you need prayer this morning, maybe you've got a grid and you've been trying to determine your life through you being good enough or everybody else rising to what you think is good enough and you just have all kinds of judgment against yourself or other people, whatever that looks like, they would love to pray with you. You go right across the way into the lounge and you can go during music, you can go after service is over, they're gonna be there, they'd love to pray and talk with you. If you have any questions, they'd be able to talk with you about those things. We just wanna be able to hear you and give you a voice and talk of the things so we understand what the gospel truly is and how it changes our lives. We also are a people, and it seems very strange to people outside the church, uh, that we give in the way that we do. Do you know like Christians tend to be four times as giving as anybody else in the world? Like all the people who seem today want to take your money and give it to somebody else, they give on average less like 25% of what Christians give. And it's interesting, what we give, not because it makes God love us. We give because God has already given so much to us. That's why we're a generous people. And this is why at Element, we don't pass a plate. It's always a response. You can give in the offering boxes, you can give online, but we talk about it every week because it is a response in our worship. And grab some of those sermon notes and take those questions and talk to one another about your grids and and how your life has changed. Give specific things to that and kind of lay that out so you can see the difference maybe in sometimes how you'd respond this way and maybe how you respond differently now because of that grid change, because you start to understand things through what Christ has done. Because let us be a people who have our entire lives re-narrated through the lens of the goodness of what Christ has done to save us because that is the only way we will ever live in this world in a way that truly honors and loves others and glorifies God in all that we do. And then hopefully people will glorify God because of how we live. Let's pray. Father, this morning we ask that you would teach us what it means to be those who understand that you have always known what you are doing. Sometimes we look at somebody like the Apostle Paul through a grid and a lens of look how great he was. But Paul knew his own heart. He knew who he was before he came to trust in you and after he came to trust in you. And he realizes that the only reason that he has a relationship with you is because you drew him to yourself. And that is the same thing that's true for all of us. God, have us understand that we are not those who need to go on a, on a vision quest and climb a hilltop and dig a hole and somewhere we're going to find you, but that you are the one who reveals yourself and you are the one who finds us and you are the one who brings us to yourself. And in that, I ask that it would breed a deep humbleness in who we are that we would take the grids that we've developed in our lives, that we view everything through, and we would let that pride go. And that we would understand that you saved us because the state that we are in without you is the worst. And yet because of the gospel, we, through Christ, get his righteousness get his grace, 
to where we really get to live and understand ourselves as the best, but it's a humble best because it's not us. It's not ours. It's been given to us. Teach us to live humble lives, honoring you constantly, daily, having our grids reshaped and reformed so that we see who you are. And then we see this world around us through that grid of your never-ending grace as you call us to be your people in this world. And maybe those who have never known who you are would begin to glorify you because of what you've done in your people. That people would, as we're going to talk about next week, see the grace that you have brought. Teach us to live in that grace to your glory, never to our own. And have us glorify and honor you in all things. Amen. We're going to drop these curtains and I'm going to, we're going to play a, a couple songs here. And as we do, you're welcome to take communion. Uh, you're welcome to go and pray with somebody if you need prayer. Uh, but take a moment and ask God to show you what your grid actually looks like. It's so hard to see our own grid. Why? Because we live our entire lives with our grid. It's, it's like, you know, I, I got this puppy. It's been a week and a half and everyone goes, oh, look how much bigger that thing is. I don't see it grow because it's right in front of me all the time. Same thing as our grid. It's right in front of us all the time. We don't even tend to notice it. And this is why community is also good to say, hey, what does my grid look like? But it's also good to sit and take a moment and say, God, show me what my grid looks like. Teach me to trust you. Not just for my future, but for my past. That you are doing all of these things for your glory and our good. And once he shows you what your grid looks like, ask him to re-narrate that in light of what the gospel looks like. Maybe take a difficult situation you've been in this week. And what would that look like if the gospel was the grid that you saw it through? Versus whatever you've gone through and how you grew up or your marriage or your job or your schooling, whatever it is. If that was set aside and you saw it through the lens of the gospel.